Greetings, Pulp listeners. Cody Sullivan here with some exciting news about our little program. Last month was our best month yet, with over 530 downloads from listeners like you. When I started this program two years ago, the first two episodes were able to garner a respectable 12 listen total by the end of the first month. Seeing this kind of growth positively warms the cockles of my heart, and I have you and all the contributors to thank for that growth. Continue supporting us by reviewing the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, as that seriously helps us get found in a major way. It will only take a moment of your time, but if each person listening reviews this program, we have a good shot of breaking April's listening record this month. And that would sure be something else. But on to today's episode. In the spirit of wistful reminiscing about bygone episodes, I wanted to take on one of my favorite stories from the early days of Pulp and slap a fresh coat of paint on it. The Vile Goblet is one of my favorite pieces of Pulp, and though the performances by Daniel Tui and Sarah Liptrot left nothing to be desired, the sound design could use an upgrade. So with that, I'm proud to present this new telling of an old story. This is The Vile Goblet. Keeping along with the nostalgic theme, allow me to lead you into the show by reciting the original narration from Season 2. You're lying in bed during a night of heavy rainfall when you hear someone knock on your door. Your heart begins to race at the unexpected sound, how you wish to stay in bed, but a knocking door has to be answered, doesn't it? Knocking at the door is this story about an ill-fated couple who probably wish they stayed in bed. If I had known the truth about the goblet, I never would have shown it to her. I was 22 years old, having just graduated from university, and I was living in London in a small room on the second floor of a retired inn, the Rusted Nail. The year was 1909. I had been living in the room only a few weeks. Elizabeth and I had moved in together after my recent marriage proposal. I met her shortly after I arrived to England from Massachusetts. It was a small room, modestly furnished, old wooden chairs and a small wooden table, bent by time and worn by use, were set upon an oriental rug facing a small hearth which reeked of ash and burnt wood. Our landlord, Mr. Joseph Puckney, lived just down the cobbled street in his less-than-modest manner. 
He was a portly man of short stature, with a thin mustache and rosy cheeks. His receding hairline gave way to a shiny bald spot atop his head that he sometimes covered with a dark green bowler hat. He often visited us to check on the room and make sure we had no issues with it, and we never did. I loved my fiancée very much. Apart from her beauty, she was the absolute center of every occasion. She was witty and clever, and had a way of commanding an audience so that they couldn't help but be drawn into her conversation. Gregarious as she was, few knew the truth about her. She was, in fact, a fairly fractured mind. There was much she hid, even from me, and try as I might, there were some thoughts she kept hidden from all. She would often fall silent in crowded places, staring with big blue eyes out the nearest window, seemingly lost in thought. I often wondered what she was thinking about. At first, I worried this behavior was a sign of her losing interest and becoming weary of me and my friends. I asked her about it once, to which she replied, I'm fine, darling. Just dreaming, that's all. You sure you're all right? Positively. I digress. Back to the goblet. One evening, Elizabeth and I had tucked in for bed earlier than usual. There was a terrible rainstorm that shook the shutters on our windows, causing them to slam and bang into the siding of the retired inn. The rain was falling sideways, being blown by heavy gusts of wind. The rain was falling so fast, pounding against the window panes, that what started as a pitter-patter quickly changed into a single rushing sound, louder than the small fire that crackled noisily in the hearth. It was shortly after 9.30 in the evening and the world was dark, as the light of the full moon failed to penetrate the dense rain clouds that blanketed London. Suddenly, there was the sound of a knock at the front door, or what used to be the front entrance to the rusted nail. Elizabeth sat straight up in bed and shook my arm. Did you hear that? Daniel? I had heard it, but I said nothing, hoping to avoid leaving the warm burrow of our bed. She was listening for the knock again, straining her ears against the sound of the rain. This time, there were three knocks, each louder than before. Daniel, wake up. There must be someone out there. <gasps> There's a man out there. Goodness, he's soaked. And with no brolly either. With a sigh, I pulled off the covers and placed my feet on the cold wood floor. Looking out the window through the droplets of rain, I could barely make out a tall, slim man in a black coat. Other than the rhythmic knocking, he was standing completely still. It couldn't be Mr. Puckney, for as if the dissimilar shape of the man wasn't enough, I knew he had gone to Ireland this week to visit family. I had no way of knowing who this man was, but I had the feeling that it wasn't a friend of ours. All our friends knew of the inside entrance that led directly to the stairs leading up to our room. As I walked down the dusty steps that led to the retired bar room, with Elizabeth standing at the top of the stairs behind me, 
I felt the most terrible sense of dread standing behind that door. One last threefold knock as I reached the door caused me such a fright that I recoiled and hesitated before lifting the hatch on the old wooden portal. Uh, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but this inn has been shut for years. There's a pub three streets down that way if you're looking to get out of the rain. The man standing before me seemed taller now than before. I could see that what I had thought was a black coat was, in fact, a billowy black cloak. I also noticed that his hands were withdrawn inside the cloak so that I could not see them. He stared at me for a moment, and I returned the look. I did not recognize this person. Of that I was sure. He wore a tall hat, and his eyes were dark wild-looking, and yet he wore his beard trimmed very carefully and immaculate, and the tips of his dark mustache were waxed and curled. Surely such a face I would remember. Finally, he spoke. Come along, Daniel. I'll only be staying a moment. I'm a more busy man than you'd care to know. With that, he brushed right past me and walked straight to the bar gracefully avoiding the chairs and other junk strewn about the room. I heard him place something metal on the bar, and it sounded heavy. I'm sorry, sir. I'm not sure you're supposed to be here. I don't believe we've met. How did you know my name? No, Daniel, we've never met. But all your life I've watched you. I have to say, as far as introductions go, this one's a bit more dull than most I have. I see. It appears then that you have me at a disadvantage. Who are you? Oh, I have many names. Some you know, and more that have been forgotten in time. Some that are better than others. For now, you may address me as Verical. But know that I do not have time to make pleasantries. Elizabeth, I've left it here for you. You only need to follow the instructions on the side. With that, the slim man turned away from me and glided to the door. I followed him as best I could, but in the darkness I kept knocking into things littered about. Hold up, wait a moment. How do you know my fiancé? What is it you left for her, and why, sir? It's not for you, young man. But, in time, I hope I can be of assistance to you as well. One last thing. I'd advise Elizabeth to ask about her parents. They may want to stay home this Sunday Mass. Until next time. With that, he was gone as soon as he came. Confused and not without that sense of dread I felt before, I approached the object resting on the bar. My eyes now adjusted more to the darkness. I could see it was a chalice. A small goblet of fine silver. I picked it up and noticed its weight. 
And as I carried it to bring it upstairs, I looked up at Elizabeth. Her hand was firmly clasped over her mouth, and her eyes were wide, wide in silent terror. That night, Elizabeth refused to explain herself, or how our late-night visitor knew her, and more importantly, what the meaning was behind such a fine gift being left in her name. Over the next couple days, I was able to prod her for more information. It took some time for her terror to subside. She told me earlier that day she had wandered into a queer curio shop, one with a large placard that read, Psychic Reading and Magical Fortunes. It was there she said she had paid a small sum to have her fortune told by the old woman who specialized in divination. The woman was unable to see what exactly fate had in store for Elizabeth, but for a larger fee, the woman could perform a seance of sort to try and contact the spirit realm for a better answer. The events that followed were unsettling, to say the least, especially considering the events that happened that evening. A short while after the seance began, the woman fell completely still. Her eyes began to flutter and roll back into her head, and only the whites of her eyes were showing. When at last she spoke, the voice was strikingly different. Firstly, speak to me My name? My name is Elizabeth. Oh, lastly, speak your desire. I... I desire to know my future. Oh, only your future. I desire to know the future of whatever I please to think of. The woman opened her eyes and declared it would be done, but not before warning me that those that get what they seek often get more than they bargained for. I was going to tell you about it, but money has been tight, and I didn't want you to think me a fool for believing in such superstitious nonsense. Upon inspection, the goblet itself was very small and shallow, but with a wide mouth, and in bas-relief along the sides was a morbid picture of a man with a small knife. He appeared to have cut his wrist, and was collecting the stream of blood into the mouth of a small goblet. The unknown man had said that the directions for this tool of divination would be along the side, and though the thought of filling the small basin with blood made me nauseous, I couldn't stop Elizabeth's terror turned to curiosity when she came home with a new set of brass bloodletting knives from the barber down the street. She had taken the goblet to the same curio shop as before, and the psychic knew at once what the object was. She said that it was called the Vile Goblet, and indeed it had the power of clairvoyance and premonition, but that it should almost never be used except in the most dire of situations. 
It was a Saturday afternoon when Elizabeth first used the goblet. The man, Farrakul, had told her to ask the goblet about her parents before Sunday Mass. It sickened me to watch her so resolutely bleed herself into the cup, but there was no stopping her. I sat beside her when the cup was full and helped stop the bleeding by keeping a bandage pressed on her wrist as she peered into the crimson pool. Tell me, Vile Goblet, what does fate have in store for my parents? Heavens, no. Daniel, do you see that? It's their church. I'm sure of it. And it's, it's smoking. It's on fire. I, of course, could not see it. When I peered into the sanguine pool, I saw only my concerned face looking back at me, reflecting from the still surface of blood. That evening, we rushed to warn her parents of the coming tragedy. Elizabeth begged and pleaded with them not to go, and though she was hysteric, they assured her that they would worship at home in the morning. I can be honest in saying that my heart sank into my stomach the next morning as Elizabeth and I watched the purple column of smoke rising from the distant church from one of the windows in our room. It had been right. And that only made Elizabeth's thirst for hidden knowledge greater, for after that she began compiling a list of questions to ask. Would we have children? Would we ever leave London? These were the harmless questions, but I had glanced at her writings once to see she had written and crossed out such questions as, How long would Daniel live for? When will I die? Would we see the mysterious stranger again? Which brings me to tonight. One week after the vile goblet had arrived and taken over our lives. After the first use, Elizabeth became frantic in her desire to inquire. That Sunday that the church had burned, she bled herself again. I reluctantly agreed to help, for I could tell she was more interested in filling the basin than stopping her bleeding. And though I personally detested the sight of blood, I was willing to be her nurse. At first, at least. She asked about her sister, and whether she would be married within the year. Though this may seem trivial, her sister was older and lived alone and there were unspoken fears that she'd never marry at all. Tears of joy streamed down Elizabeth's face as she stared into the goblet. I can see their ceremony, Daniel. Mother and father are crying. Oh, look at that groom. Oh, can you see him, Daniel? Can you see him? He's very handsome. I wonder when they'll meet. She became very faint after that incident, and fell into a deep sleep. I was upset at how she looked. Apart from the frantic smiling she donned upon her face, I could see her rosy cheeks lose their luster in the dim lamplight. 
After that night, I refused to assist her. Not because I didn't want her to be safe, I just thought that it might stop her for a few days and give her a chance to recover. It is now all too apparent I was wrong. There's, there's nothing there. Earlier this morning, I was awakened by her shouting. I sat up in bed to see what was the matter. It's not working. There's, there's nothing there. There's nothing there! Darling, please stop that. What's wrong? Here, let me stop the bleeding. It's, it's not showing me anything. Nothing at all. Not even my reflection. Daniel, I'm afraid I must not have asked the question properly. What question, exactly? Oh, Daniel, I just, I just wanted to know where we'd be a year from now. I just want to know what will become of us. But the phrasing must be off, or perhaps I'm not feeling it enough. My love, please stop this. I'm worried about you. Can you just stop for a couple weeks? We can go away and forget about this whole sordid affair. <sighs> yes, dear. Yes. I... You're probably right. I just think that it's rather curious that she'd stop working all of a sudden. Perhaps I should rest. A couple hours later, she said she was going out for some air. Said that the cool wind on her face might invigorate her, and that she wanted to go alone. I myself headed to work, where I spent the day deep in thought about Elizabeth and the goblet. I could not shake that same sense of dread I had felt when that mystery man knocked loudly at our door, so that by the time I had gotten out and was headed home under a darkened sky lit by gaslight, I clipped along at a hurried pace. When I arrived home and up the side entrance stairs to our room, I found it locked. Elizabeth wasn't home yet, it seemed. My skin began crawling with goosebumps as I turned on the lamps and tried to start a fire. Suddenly I heard a crash from the barroom downstairs. I nearly bolted out of my skin at the sudden silence-piercing noise. I listened for a moment, and I heard nothing. No sound at all. I unlatched the door and stood at the top of the stairs, peering down into the obscuring darkness of the retired bar. But I noticed a faint glow coming from beyond the edge of my sight. Slowly, tentatively, I moved down the stairs as silently as I could. What I saw! God, what I saw! There was a makeshift altar at the end of the bar, glowingly adorned with burning candles and smeared in blood was the name Ferical all over the ground and the walls around the altar. And on the altar itself, there were the letters of that cursed name jumbled about and in the very center, underneath where the vile goblet had runneth over with blood, was the devil's name himself. Lucifer. 
I hardly recognize the figure sprawled across the floor as my doomed fiancé. It was Elizabeth. Tufts of hair were strewn about, so much that her scalp was showing in bloody patches. She was wearing a red-stained nightgown and lying in a pool of blood blackened by the candlelight. I rushed to her side and knelt down in a deep pool of cold, sticky blood. No, 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 please, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, wake up. I'm so sorry, Daniel. I should never have contacted him. I've doomed us both. I think I understand now what the goblet meant are not showing me a premonition of our future. We have no future, Daniel. We are meant to die. I love you so much, and I hope you forgive me. Don't go, Elizabeth. Don't leave me. I love you so much. <laughs> she was gone. I could tell from her blank stare how cold to the touch she was, and honestly, how much blood she'd lost. I knelt there sobbing for a moment, holding her cold corpse in my arms. After some time thinking dreadful thoughts, I wondered how I could go on living without her, or if I too am truly meant to join her in the grave as she had said. I had thought to use the goblet myself when suddenly I heard a familiar voice. I turned around to see the man, Ferical or Lucifer, holding the goblet which was filled to the brim with cool blood up to his <laughs> lips. I told you, Daniel, this is not meant for you. She was right, however. You are meant to die here by her side. I think that's a more romantic end than most couples have, don't you? I watched him as he slowly drank the lifeblood of my dead Elizabeth. Watching the streaks of red cascade down the corners of his mouth, and when he was done, he produced a silk kerchief to dab away the liquid. Not that it should matter much, but upon finding your bodies, it will be assumed that you sacrificed your beloved to me before taking your own life. It's funny how humans believe that it is my life's work to drive people mad, to make them kill themselves and one another. But how much more honest it is to say that it's your kind's own morbid curiosity that drives you mad. It is the engine that built your civilization, and it is the same device that burnt Rome, destroyed Babel, and in the end, damns you all to me. I will say that, though I never forced this punishment on humankind, I do take from it a very deep 
satisfaction. Now, I must go. We'll see each other again, I think. May your death bring you some small measure of peace. Goodbye, Daniel. He stepped back into the shadows from whence he came, taking the vile goblet with him. And though I couldn't peer into that darkness, I knew he was gone. Is it true? What he said? Would this macabre discovery be pinned on me? Would my good name go down as one of the hidden Satanists that prowled London streets? Even if I wished to stay alive to tell what happened, I had no proof. I would surely be hanged and my reputation tarnished still. So, that is why I'm writing this here, now, in the candlelight beside the body of my love. I feel tired from the exhaustion of recounting these painful memories, as well as the steady droplets of my own blood streaming out of my left wrist, onto the floor, and mixing with Elizabeth's. I do not know what fate has in store for me on the other side, but I can only hope that she'll be there. You must know I loved her dearly and would never dream of harming her. If I had known the truth about the goblet, I never would have shown it to her.